This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. My name is Tom Selby. I'm a senior analyst at AJ Bell and today I am delighted to be joined by Guy Opperman. Guy is the MP for Hexham, Tyndale and Pontyland, a beautiful part of the UK, one that's quite familiar to me actually. And he is the Minister for Pensions. Guy, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. I talk to you from uh, a hill in rural Northumberland looking out over the Tyne Valley and uh, Westminster and the world of pensions seems miles away, but <laughs> the likes of COVID, that's where we're having to work from at the moment. I'm incredibly jealous of you, I have to say. I've, I've, no, I've noticed you've you've posted multiple pictures on social media of deep snow and of an adorable looking dog called Zola. Um, in my in my current current environs of, uh, of London, there's there's no no possibility of a dog at this stage anyway, due to a lack of space. And things are quite grey and miserable, so I'm I'm jealous of where you where you find yourself. But I digress. Well, I, I just I mean, listen. A you may regret the reference to Zola because she sat on a chair next to me at the moment asleep, but the next forty minutes. <laughs> or, um, and bear in mind, so uh, Zola comes with me wherever I go. So she's a mm. London dog as well as a country dog, um, and has to when I come back to Westminster, she comes too, and has to. Uh, live in a London lifestyle but it is true that we have been having at one stage I had four foot of snow and we've been properly snowed in and uh, she's had a lot of fun um, basically jumping into snow drifts and disappearing we had to dig her out one day which was fairly spectacular yeah I was going to say if any, anyone anyone listening to this who hasn't seen Zola if you go into guys at Twitter account i think you said for guy Offerman on twitter he'll come up with some great videos of a dog bounding around in the snow if you've if you're struggling for uh for for something to get you going and then i can highly recommend it now i'd love to spend the next 30 minutes or so talking about zola but there's an important bit of legislation guy that you've um uh allowed to get through parliament you've shepherded through parliament of course the pension schemes act so it was a bill it's now become and act so that's been two years in the making am i right in saying that broadly into in, in terms of how long it's been going through parliament um, um, and you've you've summarized you've summarized that that piece of work quite neatly i think on um, on twitter in various other places as aiming to make pensions safer better and greener so I think in terms of uh, the people listening to this podcast who will be keen to understand what it what it means for them it might be worth going through those those three bits of um, of the act. So if we if we kick off with safer, so in in what way do you hope the pension scheme act will make people's pensions safer than they were before the act was introduced? Um, so it is true we have um, articulated two years worth of work, a few grey hairs, mm. an awful lot of effort. <laughs> three word catchphrase, which is safer, better, greener pensions, and. In terms of safer, I think there are three key elements to it. We have had a problem with scams and we are taking huge efforts to prevent um, scams whereby there are transfers from uh, one pension uh, to a a place where uh, potentially an individual constituent can lose uh, their money. And so those uh, red flags that apply in certain situations 
are then going to allow trustees to prevent such a transfer and to ensure that uh, people are saved from themselves in circumstances where they've been conned by fraudsters. So I think they will make a massive difference. Those regulations will be in play by the autumn. And um, I think they got great cross-party support in the House of Commons, the House of Lords. And genuinely, we believe that we will save people uh, thousands and thousands of pounds of money uh, by ensuring that, and, and also help businesses like yourselves and other businesses who are dealing with customers as IFAs um, because they want to have confidence in the system and they want to have confidence that when they do move their money around, it is done in a safe way. So that's the first thing. The second is um, a lot of the um, defined benefit reforms in the derive from the outrage that was felt uh, by the behaviour of Sir Philip Green and his actions in respect of BHS uh, many years ago. And so consequently, we did a DB white paper and then we drove forward uh, proper changes that bring in civil and criminal sanctions to punish those who uh, willfully or recklessly harm a pension scheme. And uh, I genuinely believe that this is a deterrent um, because the vast majority of sponsoring employees and trustees do the right thing. No question, the vast majority do. And that is the vast, vast majority. We're talking 99.99%. But we have to deter the 0.01%. And uh, there was a risk that the bad apples were spoiling the barrel. And so we have put in deterrent sentences to make individuals think twice before acting in a way that puts member savings at risk. And uh, I'm pretty sure that that's what's going to happen. And uh, it is unquestionably, in my view, going to make your DB pension uh, safer. And we're doing other things in terms of regulator powers and ensuring that uh, open DB is something that is uh, regulated in an appropriate way, such that there is a uh, much greater likelihood of uh, the member getting their return. Okay, so so could I just pick you up on the on the scams point because I think that is a it's a good piece of work that the the DWP's done. I think I think the the vast majority of um, people within the industry, providers like ourselves and others, are very much behind the work that the DWP is doing. I think one one thing that's probably worth pointing out is that this is, as you say, just about scams where somebody's moving from one pension to another pension, and clearly. Um, as I know the government uh, understands, the, the vast majority of scam act activity is now targeted at people who are over the age of 55 who are, who are being targeted by online scams and, and all the rest of it because they have access to their, to their retirement pot. So while this is a good, good piece of work the government's doing in order to make it more difficult, I think anything that can be done to close off an avenue for scammers is a good thing. I think anyone who's listening to this clearly needs to still take steps to understand where there's money's going and understand the fact that actually it's not necessarily within the government or our regulators or anyone else to prevent them being scammed altogether because scammers are going to keep on trying to um, attack people's pension pots. So it, it, outside of the work within the bill, is, is, is the government looking at other areas in order to ensure that pension fraud outside of pensions is, is, uh, is tackled? Well, there's a variety of things that we are doing. Uh, I'm speaking to and engaging with organisations like Google and some of the social media companies to ensure that um, fake websites and fake companies uh, are not set up, which then people then, oh, look, that's a really good investment that I could make. The returns look amazing. 
And it says that they are hypothetically Aviva, but it's not actually Aviva, it's a fake version of Aviva, and you transfer your money over thinking it's legitimate. So we're trying to persuade the um, social media companies and Google to uh, smarten up their act and be sure that they are taking uh, legitimate companies rather than uh, fake companies. Uh, Secondly, I think that we are trying to engage at an earlier stage. So I'm a massive advocate of what I call the midlife MOT. So for those of us who are lucky enough to be between the ages of 45 to 50, that is the midlife. Um, For men, it is approximately at 47 that you engage with your long-term thoughts on retirement, on uh, your long-term work, and also your health in a proper way. And so we want to get people before they start to decumulate to engage in a particular way with their wealth, their work, and their well-being. And part of that is retirement planning. And part of that is understanding how much money you will need in your retirement. And so we are working with um, companies who've done this. Examples are Reviva, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and others. Uh, looking at how it is we can try and do that to get greater financial resilience and greater financial understanding uh, amongst various individuals who are reaching that age. The, the beauty of that, in our view, is you, you are engaging people in a conversation prior to them making the decision that they are going to access their cash. In other words, once I've made a decision that I'm going to access my cash, whether through pension freedoms or just through normal retirement, slightly it's much harder to influence that decision because the, the, mentally the person's made the decision that they're going to do this. Um, and then it's just a, a, there's a, there's a, a, the ability to influence that is quite hard. So in certain cases, people shouldn't uh, be doing so. They should probably stay in a defined benefit pension, for example. Um, But uh, we just want them to have that discussion at an earlier stage, which allows them to be planning in a much better way. So those are the sort of things we're doing. Yeah, yeah. So aimed very much at engagement and education of people. So specifically in relation to scams, they're in in a, a better place to protect themselves I guess because I, and that's something that certainly um, I you know in a lot of the conversations I have and I know lots of other people in the industry as well have been have been focusing on here is is the fact that the best way for most people and most people listening to the, this podcast who are perhaps thinking of transferring their pension elsewhere or have been have seen a, an, an outlandish offer on social media or on the internet mm-hmm. suggesting they could have ten percent or fifteen percent returns in a year the best thing to ensure those people aren't victims of scams is, of course, for them to understand the telltale signs and make sure that they don't fall victim by moving their money without doing the various checks that they put in place. And I think the the work that you're doing on the MOT is definitely a, a, a useful part of that in terms of ensuring people right at that key point in time so in their in their 40s when they're coming up to the point where they can access the pension are in a in a position to um, to make a decision that's informed and aren't, aren't going to be duped by some of these increasingly sophisticated scams I think as well I always find it incredibly sad um, looking and as you see the scam market evolve there's it's it's, it's clear that this is quite a sophisticated industry that works hard to try and defraud people of their of their hard-earned savings yeah I mean listen they should be consulting organizations like pension wise who are free and run by the government and provide proper assistance they they definitely you know the simple principle is if it looks too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And the bottom line is um, there is nobody uh, who is going to be guaranteeing you 10 to 15% return, um, particularly in a time of COVID, um, without being a scammer. And uh, that's just not 
something that people should be embracing and they should be doing proper due diligence and checks that this is a legitimate organization. And uh, you're right, scammers are very, very clever. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to the better um, part of the, the DWP's message then. And a, a key part of this, I, I suspect, is going to be around pensions dashboards. Now, this this is something that the the DWP and, and the pension industry and others have been have been talking about for a while. So the Act has measures in place to make pensions dashboards uh, a reality. So this would allow people ultimately to see all of their pensions in one place online. So when can when can people expect to, uh, what can people what, what should people be expecting from dashboards and when should they be expecting to to see them become a reality? So uh, if I'd asked you 10 years ago, do you have a banking app or a savings app, you'd have shaken your head at me in reality. But now most people have a banking app. I am old enough that I used to actually go meet a man called a bank manager in a bank and have a discussion about my bank account. Now, nobody does that anymore, um, but I do engage with my bank manager all the time because I have a banking app. And because I have a banking app, I'm really engaged in my finances. Similarly with savings, um, I've got a savings app, so therefore I'm really working with my savings. Now, we want to take those principles and we want to apply them to pensions. And I want uh, pensions to be available uh, by way of an app and accessible from your iPad, your computer or your phone. And the beauty of that is that it will uh, make pensions a digital device that you will therefore be accessible. It will make it comprehensible in a way that it isn't comprehensible at the present stage. And it will also bring together all the various pensions that people have. Now, bear in mind, my my granddad, aside from uh, five years bashing Germans, uh, worked in the same job from the age of 14 to 65 in an engineering firm and uh, had one bank account, one pension and one savings account. Those types of behavior are for the birds. That just doesn't work like that anymore. Most people, particularly millennials, will have somewhere between 10 and 15 jobs over their lifetime. And consequently, with automatic enrollment, they will have many, many, many different types of accounts. We want to try and assist consolidation. We certainly want to try and ensure that costs and charges aren't eating into those uh, particular pension pots. And most of all, we want to try and assist people to understand what they've got and what they need. And creating a dashboard, one device where you are in charge or an IFA on your behalf is in charge to bring together all of your savings is a massive logistical exercise, given that there are you know, 40,000 plus schemes out there. Um, but it is also something we have to do. And it's no different from open banking. It's no different from uh, what we've done in terms of uh, savings as well. I genuinely believe it will be game changing. You say, when will it happen? It's over the next two years, it'll be rolled out. Um, from 2023, uh, you will have the ability to access your information. And there's a whole variety of progresses that are being made. You'll also be able to understand and access your state pension. You'll also be able to understand um, what the costs and charges are as well. And then as, as things develop and mature, you'll be able to understand how it is your money is invested on your behalf as well. And finally, um, your existing provider can assist you. You know, we've allowed commercial dashboards to come into place, but we want to create something that is secure, which I'm certain we can do but it is also very user-friendly. And um, I believe it will encourage more people to save into a pension without a shadow of a doubt. 
But I also see the brave new world will be that there are four types of uh, effectively financial savings. There is your traditional bank account where your money goes into and you may have a savings account. There is a savings uh, traditional, whether that is like sort of money wise or plum or uh, chip or one of these other um, uh, data friendly savings apps. There is your pension and then there's your stocks and shares. Now, those four things, in my view, will merge into one. You will move money around way more than you presently do. And you will amalgamate and consolidate all of those things way more than you presently do. And my view is that it will make a much more data friendly, much more accessible and much easier to understand uh, pension system for everybody. We're, we, we are trying to make pensions simpler on so many levels. So first of all, take the, the, the traditional pensions, which is a paper based model and making it digital and then when you have an annual statement, um, we are producing what is called simpler statements. At the moment, I challenged a group of pension professionals, a thousand of them, in the days when we could have thousand person conferences, um, to stick their hand up if they believed that their mum, their dad, or their husband or wife uh, understood their pension statement. Uh, and uh, two people out of a thousand stuck their hand up. I personally think both of those were doing it just for show. I was going to say, I was surprised it was that many. <laughs> and so what we're doing is we are taking the 43-page pension statement that no one reads and everyone sticks in a kitchen drawer uh, mm. and they don't lose. Uh, and we're turning that into, to start with in the DC world, but we will do it in DB in the end as well. We're turning that into the simpler statement. And the simpler statement does what it says on the tin. It is a two-page simple statement that tells you the basics about your pension. And if you are uh, particularly interested in knowing more, there are signposts to give you more information. But it, it's trying to make it so that, uh, you know, my holy grail is this. And for those of you listening, the holy grail is that you receive your simpler statement and you tuck it into your pocket and you go to the pub and someone else will have received their simpler statement. And you can both understand each simpler statement, because here's the point. Everything will look exactly the same. You must have consistency. So if you understand one, you can understand the other provider's simple statement. And it, it allows, my lordy, a conversation in the pub about what I've got and what I'm entitled to would be a great thing. Because at the moment, that just does not happen. Yeah, a, a conversation in the pub about pensions sounds like an absolute dream to me, to be honest, Guy. But then I'm, I'm not necessarily normal. I think the pub thing's probably quite normal. I'm not sure if the well, pensions think, thing's quite there yet. Although I have noticed it has been increasing in recent years. I still, I'm still, well, before before lockdown, I was still dragging my carcass around a, a football field um, every week at, 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 at a decreasing level as it, as each year each year passes. And I have noticed that there's an increasing interest in the things that I, I talk about and and the, the whole idea of saving for retirement. I think things like automatic enrollment and perhaps the pension freedoms to an extent as well have, have driven certainly more, it's, it's moved from being just a kind of passing interest and a slight nod to, a, to genuine questions about what people should be doing when they're, when they're, when they're saving for retirement. Um, well, listen, I, I think there are a number of issues. You're right. Automatic enrollment has transformed pensions. Um, mm. You know, you ten and a half million people who didn't previously have a DC automatic enrollment. Yeah, pension. extraordinary. Yeah, that, and we've transformed it. We, you know, the stats are just ridiculous. Um, young people and women were massively underrepresented in um, pension saving. We're now both of those groups are up to about eighty plus percent. Um, and slowly but surely, we are transforming the pension savings market. 
uh, for so many people. Secondly, you're right, there is a, um, a greater awareness and campaigns like Make My Money Matter, uh, campaigns like by Greta, for example, on climate change, make a difference because people realize how your pension is invested is probably the significant, most significant financial investment that you make. Now, um, the, the, the bottom line is this, is that I, I'm, I love my job because my scale of influence, in my view, is massive. I have a well over £100 billion of state pension that I'm in charge of. And then we have a well over a trillion pounds uh, of private pensions that I have all regulatory control over subject to a few other people having some influence. Now, um, how that money is invested, how you communicate that and what you do with it seems to me is utterly crucial, which is why, for example, as we're going to discuss, you know, uh, ensuring that that money is invested with due regard to climate change is utterly crucial. And that's one of the reasons why people are getting so much more interested in their pension, because they realise that its investment strategy uh, determines whether we will defeat climate change. Yeah, so that 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 seems like a, a perfect point to move on to the greener part of uh, uh, the, a bit of a radio the, two link there. I think <laughs> you did it for me. It was absolutely outstanding, guy. Um, so the act requires schemes to publish more information for members on the environmental impact of their investments. Obviously, part of the the ongoing drive to tackle climate change. Um, do you, I guess my question is: Do you think that? pension schemes and pension providers generally are going to need to go above and beyond this. As you, as you mentioned, that we've got a, an increasingly environmentally conscious group of people and group of investors coming down the track, and I'm sure lots of them will be will be listening to this um, this podcast. And, and for, I think for, for a lot of you, we've seen uh, the IA publish stats saying the, the number of retail um, fund sales in the ESG market have trebled to around 10 billion, I think, in 2020 so the the interest is is there from from members is is this a case of the the dwp through the pension scheme act setting a, a baseline for what they expect schemes to do but then expecting schemes to go above and beyond that because they're going to need to to engage their members so i think there are a number of key points to make so the uk government has led the world on this we are the first uh, g7 country to legislate for net zero by 2050 we are unquestionably the leaders in what is called environmental, social and governance reforms that we introduced in 2018 throughout the EU. There's no doubt in my mind that many, many other countries are playing catch up. And then the crucial bit is that we have then introduced what is called the uh, task force for climate related financial disclosures. And that um, ensures these two measures ensure that uh, your pension scheme has to take due account of the impact of climate change on its investment strategy. Now, that matters desperately because it, it is quite clear that uh, climate change can impact on the returns that you potentially get from a pension. So it is in their fiduciary duty, their interests in trying to get a return to members, that climate change is taken into account. Secondly, though, there is the opportunity for uh, the pension schemes to influence how it is that the world is going to be, because not only are they making a difference in their investment strategy, but they also could make a very good return. And there is, I want to put to bed any argument that investing in a climate change friendly way is anything other than a, um, a proper use of pension schemes money, because you can get a good return, even though you're investing in a climate change friendly way. And in fact, many would say you've actually got to get a better return. 
And you also have these secondary benefits. Uh, well, there's two secondary benefits, which are, first of all, it then sees investment in the things that we all want to see, whether that is carbon capture, whether that is new nuclear, whether that is large solar, whether that is uh, hydrogen, whether that is uh, the ability for uh, large wind farms to generate a return, but also get us to net zero. And this other secondary benefit is the UK in a, whatever your views on Brexit, but the UK in a post-Brexit world needs to have expertise and a financial capability both to uh, generate taxes, but also to uh, lead the world in the way in which we get to net zero. And we have a massive advantage because one of the benefits, and there weren't many, of Trump being in the White House is the UK has uh, a financial centre that was at the heart of um, taking forward ESG and climate change matters, which means uh, asset managers and investors really understand this process in a way that in America, they by and large don't, because Trump was a climate change denier, pulled out a Paris agreement, didn't regard it as important. So we're first in the market is the crucial point. And there is over a trillion pounds worth of money to be invested. And I believe things like a green guilt uh, will genuinely uh, provide an opportunity for people to make a climate change friendly investment in their pension for which they will be proud of, which will get us to net zero, will get them a good return, and will allow the UK to lead the way in so much of these emerging technologies. It's a win-win all round. And, and was this was that was that part of the, the DWP's thinking in keeping the, the charge gap for automatic enrollment default funds at 0.75%? So that was announced a couple of weeks ago as we're, we're recording this. Um, I think clearly lots of Automatic enrollment schemes have benefited from lots more assets. Members have come through the door and, and people may have expected that charge cap to be lowered as they built economies of scale. Uh, it was part of the thinking in not lowering that to give schemes more flexibility to invest in an, an environmentally friendly way or whether were there other, other, other thought processes going on there? Well, there is a lot of thought that went into what is called the 0.75% charge cap. But uh, there is no doubt that uh, we want to have schemes that have the capability of investing in what is called illiquid assets, in environmentally friendly assets. And the capability of doing that uh, is more complicated than putting all of your money in a pooled fund that is a tracker of the FTSE 100. Clearly, if I take every single investment in my pension fund, give it to one investment manager and say, just track the FTSE 100, it's relatively simple and my charges will be relatively low. But my returns won't necessarily be um, what I really want or what we really want. So um, we are trying to encourage people to look at illiquid investments in things like um, solar and uh, alternative. It can be social housing. It can be key worker housing. It can be there's this whole host of different opportunities that are out there. And so one of the reasons that we looked at the cap and I decided not to change it was because I felt that that was a perfect capability of allowing some degree of latitude to do that. OK, that makes sense. So I, I always feel slightly strange um, asking, asking this question. So as I, as I mentioned at the start, you've just shepherded a, a Pension Schemes Act through the Houses of Parliament. For, for anyone listening who's, who's not familiar with the process of shepherding acts through Parliament, and I'm sure that's lots of you because you've got better things to do with your time, it isn't easy. It's a hard piece of work to do and it takes a lot of grunt effort. But I'm going to ask anyway, what next? 
So what is next for, for Guy Opperman and for the DWP? So we're in 2021. Now we've got a few years until an election. There's clearly going to be other other priorities. What where's your where's your focus going to going to be in the in the coming months? So I think there is a great line by Hemingway, who's one of my favorite writers, who says, any fool can write, but only a great writer can edit. So it's the same with statutes. So it's taken two years to pass primary legislation in the form of the Pension Schemes Act. But there is a lot of secondary regulation that flows from that. And so make sure you get the details right. So I very much will be doing the dull stuff, the editing of a great novel. Um, and I'm editing basically the act by bringing forward the secondary regulations that follow from it. So that's the, the first part. So in other words, don't just think you've made a great speech and move on. Um, so the, the second bit is though, we're looking at sort of automatic enrollment 2.0 is how I describe it, uh, which is there are certain things around things like small pots uh, and costs and charges, which we're having a really good long hard look at. Secondly, we are looking at super funds and whether we can drive forward super funds uh, in the defined benefit space to basically give consolidation. Thirdly, we are definitely going to consolidate massively um, in the uh, defined contribution automatic enrollment space. The reason being quite simply that uh, there are way too many schemes, many of which are far too small, and they're just simply not going to be able to do what we want them to do. Uh, with the size that they've got at the present stage. And there's no doubt in my mind that bigger is best. And the message I would put on consolidation is that I've already looked at a sort of zero to 100 million level. Uh, I will go way, way bigger in the next year or two, without a shadow of a doubt, we'll go well into the billions going forward. Um, I've got to consult on it, but my direction of travel is way bigger than uh, what I've presently done. And my reach has got to exceed my grasp by a great deal. And certainly I look at what's going on in Australia, where they regard 10 billion as very small. And in my view, that's clearly the right way to go. I'm also looking um, once again with Treasury at uh, illiquid investments and deciding what more we can do to stimulate uh, such investments and look at the Canadian and the Australian models as to how we can do this better. Um, and then uh, going forward, uh, I really want to try and understand um, if there are other particular parts of automatic enrollment we can take forward, clearly we've got to bring forward the product of the 2017 review. But um, the bit that I'm really interested in as well is it is quite clear to me that there is a problem with what I call rainy day savings. So uh, there was a problem with this pre-COVID, but the COVID pandemic has really brought it home. And there is no doubt that in this country, there are several million people who don't have the 100 to 500 pounds set aside uh, to cope with um, the usual difficulties and disasters that life brings upon you. And we want to try and change that. So I'm looking at how it is I can introduce a system of rainy day savings and whether that is done through a sort of sidecar saving plan uh, using automatic enrollment principles, or whether that is done through a uh, making tax digital and making a uh, automatic deduction. Uh, we're just looking at uh, ways in which we can facilitate and encourage people to have that rainy day cushion that allows for not just a COVID pandemic, but the things, the two biggest problems that people face are the washing machine breaking down or their car breaking down, both of which are for families and people who are trying to get to work are seismic occurrences and I'm the Minister of Pensions and Financial Inclusion, 
And that is the biggest battle on financial inclusion, trying to get rainy day uh, money uh, to people up and down the country. Yeah, that's that's vitally important and a, re- a really important point, I think, as well in, in this discussion. Sometimes, um, understandably, we can get side t- sidetracked with um, retirement saving and pensions generally. But for the va- vast majority of people, as you say, the first point in saving should be to have that rainy day buffer in place somewhere between three and six months of fixed expenses is what we usually say so that when something bad happens and you talk about a washing machine or a car breaking down and obviously lots of people have been hit hard as a result of covid and realized that as as they were facing that period of uncertainty they had nothing at all in the bank accounts so making sure you've got something there to to tide you over when things aren't going well is is absolutely crucial and we'll we'll, we'll obviously look with great interest at the work that the DUP and others do in regards to improving that, that sounds like a very interesting piece of work sorry go on guy well yeah there's a there's a separate point as well which is and um i'm going to generalize here so please don't take context but yeah. so there are two cohorts who have been particularly mm. affected in uh covid there is clearly a cohort who have been financially affected um, whether by illness or by furlough or by uh, losing their job and who are in difficulties. And we look, want to look after and help them going forward. But there's also a very interesting cohort who have kept a job throughout COVID and who haven't been able to spend money on going on holidays or uh, buying stuff or going out partying or whatever. And actually, there is copious evidence that there, though, that cohort of people, which is very big, actually, have actually got greater money in their bank account and have paid off their credit cards. And that cohort in particular, if they were listening, I would urge them massively to try and look at having a savings account on a long-term basis because, and, and tucked away somewhere between £100 and £1,000 at uh, the very least uh, to try and uh, cope with difficulties and disasters going forward. Because that sort of rainy day money, whether you want to invest it in a credit union, whether you want to invest it in a separate savings bank account, whether you want to go to, and obviously as a government minister, there are a lot of providers out there, but uh, I, I, you know there are organisations like um, uh, Moneywise and other ones who are, and Moneybox, who are very, very good at doing automated savings and really investing it in an in a, uh, ISO on an ongoing basis. Those sort of organisations are there to help you and it's vital that we come up with uh, long-term savings um, on a long-term basis so that people have that rainy day money. And that's something that we're very, very much going to look at working to do on an ongoing basis. And is, is there any, any time scale on those reforms at this stage or is that just something that's, be, that's been looked at and in, in, in possibilities assessed at the moment? Well, there is already the sidecar savings trial mm. that's been done by Nest yeah. and Hartford. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Uh, and obviously some companies like Timpsons and BT are uh, doing work on it already. There is also Help to Save, which is uh, for those who are on UC, which is run by Treasury and DWP. But it is also trying to have financial resilience and what that looks like on an ongoing basis. That mm. is trying to do, and that's how we're trying to really maximise that. Okay. Uh, one, uh, one final final part, and then I'll, I'll leave the floor to you to, to round things um, things up. So on the, the state pension age, obviously something that affects and exercises um, everyone for, for, for obvious obvious reasons. Um, the, we know that the state pension age is going to go up to 67 by 2028. And then the intention, as I understand it, is to then increase the state pension age to 68 by 
2039. Now that that was um, mentioned by the previous government, was set out by the previous government, I believe, but wasn't put into legislation. So I was just wondering what the what the DWP's current thinking is on the on the timetable for state pension age increase uh, and whether well, the the intention is still to go ahead. Well, it's it's really simple. We have to do a state pension age review. It's mm. got to report back by May 2023, and then we'll make decisions thereafter. Simple right. as that. That's fantastic, guys. Is there anything else that you'd uh, you'd like to add before we wrap things up? Um, just engage with your finances. Please save mm. more pension, yeah. but engage with your finances. That's what we want people to do. And in terms of um, uh, what they are doing, uh, have a look at your finances and please plan for the long term because uh, we we should be here for a long term. All right. Fantastic. I couldn't put it better myself. Guy Opperman, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Cheers, Tom. Thank you, as always, for listening to Money and Markets this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please let us know by leaving a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to join us next week when we'll be breaking down the key announcements from Chancellor Rishi Sunak's budget and what they could mean for your finances. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.